Well, that's awesome. Um, we love family, and uh, even if you're not married and you don't have kids, you can still love family because the church is called to be a family. And so um, that's a beautiful picture of what the family of God is supposed to look like. We are in First uh, Peter, and we're going to be continuing with that today. So if you're new, um, we've been kind of working our way through the first chapter of First Peter. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to First Peter, and we're going to be starting in verse 13, okay? First uh, Peter's way toward the back, um, before, uh, right after Hebrews and James, okay? And you'll see First Peter there. Now, this week has been a good week, right? Extra hour of sleep, huh, last night? Yes? Anybody excited about that? I was excited about that. Um, and then we got the Cubs winning, right? Anybody in favor? We got some in favor down here. Yep, back there. Now, I'm not much of a baseball guy, so I went to bed early. I apologize. Um, I'm an old man now, 930 is about my cap on the old uh, bedtime. And <laughs> literally, it's true. Um, and uh, so, man, it's like seventh inning, I'm out of here. So we go to bed, but I did do a little research, and Michael McKittrick uh, helped me with this the day after with this kind of opening sermon illustration, and so he gets all the credit for this. But um, I loved what Jason Hayward said um, at the crucial moment in the game when the Cubs needed to rally. So if you didn't watch the game, you're not a baseball guy like me, um, here's kind of what was happening. I did my research here, and the Cubs had just blown a 6-3 to three lead. It was tied up. All the momentum, right, was going for the Cleveland Indians. And then all of a sudden, it starts pouring, right? Rain delay. And so we got this big pause. And momentum is stopped for the Indians. And, and Jason Hayward is a Cubs player. And he's like, I got to gather everybody here. We got to have a meeting. and We got to talk. And here's what he said. Uh, here's a quote. It was, it was starting to rain, and I was like, they're going to pull the tarp, and we need to get together and have a meeting. Just needed to let these guys know they're awesome. Don't get down. Here's what he said. I love this. I just had to remind them of who they were. I just had to remind everybody who we are. Win or lose, we were never worried about that. At the beginning of every day, we never worry about wins or losses. We just worry about how we're going to go out there, have fun, compete, be right there, for the guys next to us and not take the situation for granted. I love what he said in that, in the middle there. Did you catch it? He said, I had to remind them of who they were. I just had to remind everybody who we are. And what is that? What is he doing? He's talking about identity. He's wanting to remind them of their identity. Saying, guys, this is who we are. And so what? So we're going to live a certain way. This is who we are. So what? So we're going to go out and we're going to play a certain way. This is who we are. So we don't have to be all locked up and nervous about momentum shifts and all that. Let's just go out and do what we do. This is who we are. Reminding someone of their identity has tremendous power. And the Bible, through and through, shows the primacy of the importance of knowing identity, of knowing who you are. Maybe even more clearly said, knowing who God says you are and having that define 
who you know you are. And that's exactly what Peter has been doing in these last four weeks as, we, as we've walked through 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. And he knows that this first audience 2,000 years ago in modern-day Turkey, in scattered churches all throughout Asia Minor, they were discouraged. They had been experiencing a loss of momentum. And, and they knew that they were looked at as kind of Christian weirdos in a culture that did not appreciate their values and who they were and this Jesus that they worshipped. And so for the last four weeks, we've seen Peter just remind them who they are. Just look at it with me. We'll review it again. Look at verse 3. Oh, no, let's just, actually, let's go back to verse, um, verse 1. Who are you? You're, an, you're elect. See that in verse 1? To those who are elect. You're chosen by God. And you are those that have been foreknown. See that in verse 2? And you're being sanctified, verse 2. Verse 3, you, you, you've been born again. And you have a living hope because the resurrection's true. Verse 4, you have an inheritance that is, what man, that's, that's cool. It's un, uh, un, undefiled, imperishable, unfading. Verse 5, you're being guarded by God himself through faith. Verse, verse 7, you're being tested, but that testing is producing something beautiful. Verse 8, you love God. This is who you are. You've got joy. This is who you are. It's inexpressible. You've got salvation. Verse 9, that's who you are. You are you're those that have been saved. So he's just going out of his way to remind them who they are, right? That's what these last four weeks have been all about. So if your back is against the wall, if you're up against it, we always want to go back to who God says we are, okay? We don't want to define ourselves by our feelings, as easy and prevalent as that is. We define ourselves by who God says we are, not by our feelings, I don't feel like I have much of an inheritance. That's okay. Verse 4 says it's true. We're going to trust God more than we trust ourselves. So now, Peter moves on. And with this identity that he's been at great pains to articulate to this first audience and to us, he's going to move on to this. What are the implications of this identity? Now that I know who I am, what am I supposed to do? Okay? Like, since these things are true of you, or because these identity statements are true of you, if this is who you are, then how should you live? And, and I want to take a little sidebar here. It's very important. I want you to notice the order. I want you to notice the order, because it's very intentional, and it's extremely important. Please note the order here in the text. He doesn't start with what you're supposed to do, so that you can somehow achieve your identity. It's the opposite. You have your identity, and though, so thus you're going to do some things, right? He doesn't say if you want to know that you have verse 4 eternal inheritance, then you better get your act together and start living a certain way. That's not how it's articulated, is it? The Bible does not motivate obedience like that. He starts with identity. And then from there... When that is secure, when that is known, when that is settled, 
when you know who you are, then your identity has implications. Like I talk about this in parenting all the time. Some of you have heard it, some of you haven't, so let me say it again. Here's a, hopefully, we don't do this perfectly, but this is how we want to do it in parenting when it comes to correction. Since I love you, we expect you not to be selfish. Not, you better quit being selfish or I'm not going to love you. That's very, very different. And that harms children. The other way motivates obedience based on identity. Since you're a member of this family, you can't lie to, you, to your sister. Since you're a member of this family, you can't eat all of your brother's Halloween candy. Okay? Mom and dad will do that after you go to bed. <laughs> Kids in the room, that's what goes down. Because there's so much of it, you never miss any of it anyway. Right? So, so check it out. Never forget the order. Okay? Many of us have been led to believe, and it's not hard. You don't, some of us don't even have to be led to believe this. We just are spring-loaded to believe this. That if I just behave a certain way, then I can achieve my identity. Okay? If I just behave, if I just get myself together, then God will look down and go, oh, I want them to be my child. Because, man, they've cleaned themselves up really good. If I just behave a certain way, then God will be pleased with me, and I can earn something from him. I can earn an identity from him. And that's never how God works. That's the opposite of Christianity. See, Christianity says if you trust and treasure Jesus as the only hope to save you from your sins, then by faith, trusting and treasuring him, that's what faith is, apart from works, God is pleased with you. That's how you know that God can be pleased with you if you simply believe the gospel, believe the good news of what happened, what Jesus did in space, time, and history 2,000 years ago. You look to those events and go, yes, I know I need that. Jesus, I cast myself upon you. I want to follow you. I trust you. I treasure you. Then you can know that you're his child. There's nothing you can do to change that. And then in light of that, in light of that, you're going to live a certain way because God's grace has so captured your heart. See the difference? The difference is a huge deal. One is legalism that rejects Christ and his work for you because you want to work for him. The other is true Christianity where you say, I I could never work enough to achieve some sort of identity. I'm just going to have to cast myself on God's mercy and let, allow him by faith trust that he's going to give me an identity. And he says, I'm more than willing to. Cast yourself upon my mercy. So, so Peter now, having firmly established the secure Christian identity of these believers, and he's got it in the right order, identity first, action second. We're just going to talk about the action part. So okay, so how do we live now? How do we live? And that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. And our text for today is 13, 14, 15, and 16. And the way it's arranged is, is pretty um, interesting. And it's this. He's going to focus on the future. And he's going to consider the past. And he's going to talk about how the future and the past relate to the present. Focus on the future. Reflect on the past. And how does the future and the past relate to my present? Okay? Let's take a look here in verse 13. Therefore... 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's look at 13 here. Just quick Bible tip. A lot of you heard this. A lot of you haven't heard this. Um, anytime you see the word therefore, you always want to go back. This is just a lesson in reading your Bible in context. We always have to read our Bibles in context. So anytime you see the word therefore, you ask yourself the little catchy phrase, what's the therefore therefore? And you always know that when I read the therefore, I'm going to go back and read what preceded it. Okay? Because you know that what's about to be said after the therefore is going to be Um, built upon the foundation of what came before it. Okay, so anytime you see a therefore, you always want to read what's before it and know that that's going to inform what you're about to read after the therefore. Okay? So what he's saying is therefore, meaning what just came before it. Well, all the stuff about identity. In light of your identity being secure, in light of knowing who you are, therefore, you're going to do some stuff. All right, so what are we going to do? Number one, we're going to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded, okay? So what is preparing your minds for action? I think of my dog at mealtime. And my dog, I, I know I shared about my dog a couple weeks ago. This is just comes to mind. This is like the ultimate example, I think, of for preparing for action. Like she's got this clock. And at, in the morning and at the evening, um, she is just ultimately dialed in and she is prepared her mind for action. And what that looks like is like ultimate, like, you know, some dogs are there's like this, and they're just sleeping, and they're just like, I'm out. But when it's mealtime, it's like this, right? It's perked up, eyes engaged, and she just like does this stare. I mean, she just stares at me. Just like, like, I'm ready to go. Like, I know it's about time to eat, and I know you're probably going to feed me because you've been feeding me every day for about 13 years. And so I'm, by faith, I'm trusting that's going to happen today. And she's like staring at me. And the ears are perked up, and the head is cocked. You know what I mean? It's, if you have a dog, you know what this looks like. It's just like, boom. It's just like, waiting. Like, I'm, like if you twitch, I'm going to follow that twitch because I know it might be a twitch that leads to me eating. You know what I mean? She's just like dialed in, right? And, and she's prepared, okay? And that's kind of an illustration for what Peter's talking about here. Another one, would just, we, got, we got baseball on the brain. It's like the batter who's, who's, who's got that... that, that major league pitcher staring down at him and and he knows he has to be prepared for action so he's not just like hanging out by home plate it's like whatever oh you're gonna pitch it okay no he's like he's in a stance he's dialed in he's he's ready ready to go okay this phrase in english literally could be translated from the greek um gird up the loins of your mind like what the heck does that mean well, what that kind of means, the, the ancient imagery would be um, a man who's wearing, like back in those days, would sometimes wear these big flowing robes, especially if you were wealthy. And to gird up the lo- loins would be to like raise up your, 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 your man skirt. And, uh, and so you can run. You don't want to be hindered by these long flowing robes. So you, 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 you hike it up so you can run. Um, and and a, a, a contemporary translation would be roll up your sleeves. Why do we say that? We say roll up your sleeves so you can get to work. We're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to get to work. And that's kind of the, the, the idea that Peter's getting at here. He's like, be prepared to get to work. Be prepared for, what's he say? Action. You're going to do some stuff. Okay, so, so be, 
Be ready to go. Okay, be alert. Like I think of my dog. She's alert. The, the guy's about to hit the home run. He's got to be alert. Okay, he's dialed in. That's another phrase I use a lot. Be dialed in. But also what else? Sober-minded. See that there? Be sober-minded. What's the opposite of that? It would be drunk-minded. So what would that look like? That, drunkenness looks like things are foggy, feeling dizzy. I can't follow the straight line. I'm feeling sleepy. I've got a lack of clarity in my judgment. Um, he's saying, don't be like that. He's like, you should be the opposite of that. Be clear-headed. Clarity of thought. Energy. Ability to focus. Right? So in light of who I am in Christ, if I'm a Christian, I am to be alert and clear-headed about what? Well, it's about what I'm supposed to do. Well, what am I supposed to do? All right, let's read it. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being alert and being sober-minded, clear-headed, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to be alert and clear-headed about the future. See that? About the, this is the future orientation, okay? I'm going to be alert and clear-headed about the future. What's that going to look like? It's going to look like my hope being fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So my hope, set your hope, set your hope. What does that mean? Here's where we need to like retranslate some things because when we use in English the word hope, that's typically like a wish, okay? Like I hope that someday I'll make a lot of money so that I can buy a nice car. Well, I don't know if that's going to happen. Like I hope, like a wish, that someday um, the like I'll be able to go to the Super Bowl. Okay. I don't know if that's ever happened, but I I wish it will at some point. But that's not biblical hope. When the Bible talks about hope, um, that's not what that's not the emotion in view. It's more like this. It's more like a dad who always keeps his promises. Never once has he failed on his promises. And he says to his 14-year-old daughter, when you're 16, I'm going to buy you a car. And she knows that dad always keeps his word. And so when she says, um, that, man, I'm, I'm hoping for a new car, in a biblical sense, that's not a wish. That's like a done deal. My hope is in this new car that I'm going to get. I just got to wait for it. That day's coming. And so my hope is like that in a biblical sense. That's the hope that Peter's talking about here. It's not wish fulfillment. It's hope, biblically speaking, is a promise from God that we're just waiting to come to pass. Our hope is firmly set on this thing in the future that we know is going to happen. So when Peter says, be alert, be clear-minded, ready for action, sober-minded, Set your mind on what God has promised to do in the future. We set our hope on this. Verse 13. Here's the content. The grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants you to be alert and clear-headed about that. There's coming a day when Jesus will return and he's going to make all things right. And I know right now in your present experience, things are not right. Back then in Asia Minor and today in Madison, Wisconsin, it's the same thing. Things are not as they should be. That's not hard to figure out. But there's coming a day when Jesus will return, and Colossians says he's going to reconcile all things to himself, things in heaven and on earth. Everything will be made right. 
And those that love Jesus will spend the eternity with him. Those who they've longed, we see dimly now, and, and then we're going to see clearly. Okay? And that day's coming. And, and you've longed for Jesus and to know him without hindrance, and that day's coming. And, and Peter's saying, remember that. Set, be clear about that. Be alert about that. Okay? Be consumed with this future orientation. Let your present be dominated by this future orientation. Set your hope on that day. It's not this day, but it will be one day. Don't forget, it's coming. It's coming. Remember, remember, hold on. The future will soon be the present. Hold on. So see the future orientation of the Christian faith? Some people say it's your best life now, and that's a lie. It's your best life later. That's not to say that we don't have blessings in this life, because we do. And that's very biblical. But it's not your best possible life now. That's coming, and we wait for it. And it's just going to be a little bit it reminds me of when I was in college, man, I had serious senioritis my senior year. It was just like, man, I can't wait to get out of here. Partly because I was just kind of sick of um, college and I was ready to get on with my life. And also because I was about to get married. And I couldn't wait to graduate. And then a month later, I'm getting married. And so, man, my, my hope was, in a, in a temporal sense, my hope was set on graduation and marriage, Right? So sick of going to class, all these classes, these gen ed classes that I put off until my senior year. It's like, man, I'm not going to use this ever, and I got to gut it out. And, man, what was I going to do instead? Was I just going to quit because I was just pulling my hair out, going to these dumb classes that I didn't really care about? Just quit, like, ah, forget this. No, I had, to, I, had, I had to endure. But what helped me endure is knowing there's a graduation day coming, and there's a wedding day coming. This beautiful girl that you're longing to live life with fully and completely, that day's coming. You're going to walk the aisle and get a diploma, and she's going to walk the aisle and get a ring. You know, that day's coming. So, so don't give up. Don't just chuck college. Finish. That day's coming. That day's coming. Hang in there. That day's coming. And, and honestly, man, I look back on that period, and that waiting period was just a snap. It was nothing. It's totally worth it to finish college and hold on, you know? And Peter's saying a very similar thing here. Don't forget that future is coming, so hold on. Hold on and be focused on that future because that's going to help you in the present. So he's talked about the future. Now he's going to talk about the past. What else should I do in light of my identity as a Christian? Verse 14. We've got the future thing down, now the past. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay? So we're alert and clear-minded on the future that's coming, but also think about the past and don't go back there. Think about the past. The past was all about ignorance and living in these passions. Another way would say these lusts that just slowed you down and, 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 man, it was just a reflection of ignorance. And it didn't glorify God. It didn't bring you any joy, right? Don't, you can't go back there. In light of your identity, you can't go back there. That's not who you are anymore. 
Okay? Well, who am I? Well, verse 14 has this another identity statement. See it? Who are you? Well, you're obedient children. Well, I don't feel that obedient. That's right, but God says you are. And we're going to define ourselves based on how God says we are and not by our feelings. Right? You are, in God's eyes, in Christ, you are obedient children. That's how he, that's how he calls it. Now, I'm sure Peter's first audience, they all were sitting there going, man, I don't, I'm not fully, completely, 100% obedient. But this is who you are. In Christ, this is who you are. So now, be who you are. Be who you are. That's, that's Christian growing in holiness, growing in sanctification. Be who you are. This is how God defines you. Don't define yourself by your feelings. Define yourself by God's word. This is who you are. You're obedient children. And so since you're obedient children, you can't go back to what, the way you used to be. That's not an option. That's not your identity anymore. Okay? We don't define our reality by how we feel. We define our reality by who God says we are. All right? So we talked about the future. We've considered the past. We're not going back there. Okay? What else? Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, now we're going to talk about the present. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now let's go back to the family illustration. As a family, we often talk about our identity. We say to the kids in instructing them, um, since you're a member of this family, thus you're going to do X, Y, and Z, okay? And, and this is kind of what it means in terms of this holiness that Peter is talking about. So consider this analogy. Since you're a Nielsen, I might say to my kids, since you're a Nielsen, we're going to seek to do things differently than the, 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 what's normative, what's normal in the world, so in the world, people have a hard time forgiving. But since you're a Nielsen, we're going to be a forgiving family. Um, since you're a Nielsen, we're going to seek to be different from the world that, man, is just ultimately kind of egocentric and selfish. We're going to seek to prioritize others and be all about relationships. And so that's going to look like mealtime together. And oftentimes in mealtime, we're going to have hospitality and invite people into that. Since you're a Nielsen and you're not a member of a different family, um, we're going to be different in the way we use our money. The world tends towards greed, but we're going to tend towards generosity because you're a Nielsen. And so when you get 10 bucks for raking leaves, you know, you're going to spend some, but you're also going to save some, and you're also going to give some. See, we're going to be different, not so you can be arrogant, have a big head, but because as a member of this family, you've been called by me as your dad to live different. And I've given you a new name. I've given you your name. You got my name, and I've named you Taylor, Autumn, Emery, Maya. So we're going to do some things differently because you are different. Because who's, I'm your dad, and I'm different too. I've called you to be like this. So God is saying the same thing through Peter to an ancient audience in Asia Minor and to us today in Madison. Look at verse 15. But as he who called you. So here's again an identity statement. See it? You've been called. By who? By God. You've been called by God. That's who you are. But as he who called you, you've got a new family. God's the father. 
a new family identity, you're going to be different. Look at what verse 15 says. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You're going to be different. Okay? And that's, what, that's, a, that's a huge part of what it means to be holy, to be different. Literally, the word holy means to set something apart. Like there's normal stuff and then there's holy stuff. There's the, there's the norm, like um, my grandma's idea would be like there's the normal dishes and then there's the china, right? And we bring out the china for the big occasions, Christmas Eve, right? You've got the normal eating utensils and then you bring out the fine, the fine uh, forks and spoons and knives. What's it called? Um, sil- yeah, you bring out the silver, exactly. So it's not my generation. I don't deal with silver. I eat with plastic, you know. Um, only when Kim's not home. Uh, so that's, that's, an, that's an illustration of something being made holy. You set it apart as different and special, okay? So God says that he is set apart. See that? I am holy, those last four words. Meaning wholly different, radically different. God is radically different from sinful humans. He's wholly pure. He's the definition of rightness. He's the the definition of perfection. He is holy. So Peter is saying, check this, since God has called you into his family, and since God is completely holy, completely different, set apart in many ways, we should be different as well. We should be set apart as holy as well. Now, there's ways that we, we need to fit in for the sake of mission with the surrounding culture, but there's lots of ways that we, we, should, we should never fit in with the surrounding culture. We should stand out as unique. We should stand out as holy. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is verse 15. The, the ground zero for this is our conduct. See what it says there? But he who calls us holy also should be holy in all your conduct, how we carry ourselves, how we behave, how we interact, how people see us living. That's our conduct. It should be unique. It should be different. It should be set apart from just the normal ways of the world, okay? And notice that we get our cues from the Lord, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So our conduct, our holiness in conduct is defined by his holiness. See that there? Since as he has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. All right? So we get our cues for what holiness means based on how God is holy. Okay? Now, there's a lot of ways that God is holy and different from us that we can't ever model, but there's lots of ways that we can reflect and model. But before we talk about that, let's just talk about holiness in general for a second. Okay? I think, and I don't think anyone ever taught me this, but I just picked this up in, in you know, whatever, 35 years of being a Christian, um, that holiness was in some sense like a strict, rigid, prudish, joyless pursuit. And somebody that was holy was basically not much fun. Just kind of boring and lame, and they just, all they did around was sit around and, and just like follow the rules, Okay. And that's what holiness was. Another way to say it would be 
I think I picked up that holiness meant I have a list of all these things that I'm seeking to avoid. Like I live my life with an avoidance ethic. I know that I'm holy when I avoid certain sins. And when I was raised, the certain sins were, well, we don't get drunk or we don't drink. Uh, we, we, we don't sleep around and we don't swear. And that was pretty much the essence of holiness. Okay? Um, and that, yeah, it seems kind of silly, um, but that's just what I picked up. And here's the deal. Of course, like the Bible speaks about drunkenness. And Ephesians 5.18, you know, if you say you want to follow Jesus, you don't get drunk. And if you do, you repent and you want to turn from that. Okay? And, and we want to have sex in the way that God has defined humans to flourish. And, and we want to not take the Lord's name in vain. We don't want the, the Lord's name just to be flippant off of our mouth. We want to view God's name as holy. Of course. But it's possible to avoid certain popular sins and be completely joyless and still hate God. I mean, that's the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They had their list of all the things they avoided. They still hated the creator of all, Jesus himself. They hated him. And it's still possible to be a complete wreck, a complete sinful mess in a whole host of other ways. So being holy is so much more than just all of the sins that we avoid. Okay? Being holy is all about understanding that God himself has called you and he loves you. And as a result, you love him and thus just want to look like him. Okay? It's not an obligation like, oh, I just got to like, be holy and that's boring. Man, this is kind of lame. But, but by faith believing, man, God has called me. That's what this verse says. God himself has called me. That's mind-blowing. He knows me. He loves me. He's given me a new name. How amazing is it that God himself loves me so much to call me out of sin that destroys and given me the opportunity to have true, satisfying life in seeking to reflect how he is. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we don't focus on avoiding things to be holy. We focus on God to be holy. How is God? What's he like? How is God beautiful? How does God work? So let me just give you some examples. Like, if we want to be holy, we want to look like God. And God is patient. Man, he's unbelievably patient. When Moses asks God, show me who you are. I want to know your name. He, God self-defines as patient, having loving kindness, steadfast love to a thousand generations. And God is so patient. So when he calls believers to be different than the surrounding world, it means the surrounding world is very, very impatient. And we're called to look different. So what could that mean in a real practical sense? It means when someone cuts you off in traffic, the typical knee-jerk response is to shake your fist, to rage, to want to seek revenge. A holy response would be to not carry yourself that way. And, and to not, like, slam on your accelerator and try to, like, drag race or whatever happens. You know what I mean? If you deal with road rage, you know? That's not holiness. Holiness is remembering who God is. Man, I'm going to be patient when I drive this car. God, how else is God like? God is hospitable. 
God has welcomed sinners, people very, very different from him, into his home to be a part of his family. And that's very, very different than the way that the world works. The world typically works like, I'm just going to hang out with people that are like me, that are easy to love. And God says, no, that's not how I am. And so my holiness is defined by being different from the world. And so when God says, be holy as I'm holy, that means I might look like him in hospitality. God shows hospitality, so we will too. And that's going to set us apart from a world that doesn't. And so be holy as I'm holy might look like inviting someone over for dinner. We'll hear about that in announcements with international students at Thanksgiving. The holiness of God reflected in your life could be just doing things differently than the world does them. How does God work? He works in patience. He works in hospitality. Here's another one for our time and space right now. God doesn't fear. He's in control. God is never riddled with fear. But the world is, especially at election time. Our, our, our election publicity right now is predicated on fear. If you elect this candidate, you're going to get this, so you better be scared. And it goes both ways. But God's never fearful because he's in control. And so if we're going to be set apart and different than an onlooking world, that's what Peter's calling us to here, man, when, when whoever becomes president, we're not going to be riddled with fear. Why? Because we trust God, and he's never fearful. And he's called us to look like him, to be holy as he's holy. Okay? So hear this. Holiness is never less than the things we avoid, but it's so much more. It's so much more. Holiness at its essence is knowing how God is different from the world, reflecting on that, and just seeking to pursue that. It's like a child who just wants to be just like their dad. And that's what God calls us to. It's not prudish, rigid, joyless, slavish um, obedience. It's obedience that's fueled by a love for our Father because the way that he's different than the world is so beautiful. And we want, to see, we, want to, we want the world to see our Father. And so our Father calls us to look like Him. And here's the deal, guys. All, man, so many of us, when we read this verse, like, be holy for I'm holy, it's just like, well, I've blown it. I'm not holy. You know, and yes and amen, all of us have blown it. And that's why the good news of the gospel is so awesome. Because God comes to a people who knows their failures and say, I know, I know you've blown it. I know you can't do it. So come to me. I'm willing to, to, to give you complete, perfect righteousness, because that's what I have, when you come to me and simply trust me and cast yourself on my mercy. I will credit perfect holiness to you. And then as that blows your mind, the grace and mercy that you experience, you can turn towards me in a loving relationship and instead of trying to clean yourself up from the outside in because of your love for me that's so captured your heart, you're going to be changed from the inside out. And it's not going to be slavish. It's going to be sonship. And you're going to know your identity as chosen of God and fully loved by your Father. And that's going to awaken you to want to live a certain way, not because you have to, but because you want to. And that's how believers grow in the gospel. Okay? So don't walk away today um, with a burden of guilt because you're not holy. 
as you should be. Yeah, that's, that's Christianity. We all are in that spot. That's why we come to Jesus. But then he starts to change us from within, day after day after day. And we begin to see that he's beautiful and his holiness, day after day after day, begins to take root in our lives. And that's what Peter's calling us to today. So we've seen the future orientation, alert, clear-minded about the future that we're going to have. We've seen the past, and we can't ever go back to the former ways of ignorance. And we've seen the present. In light of our identity, God is set apart as beautiful, and we reflect his beauty in the way we live our lives to an onlooking world. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? May this word be true in our lives, and apart from your spirit helping us right now, and we can't do it. We confess that, and so we thank you that you promised to do it through us when we come to you and acknowledge you and trust you and cast ourselves upon you. May it be so today in Jesus' name. Amen.